Things are hot, and I'm not just talking about the topics on Today in Ohio. Today is going to be one steamy day in Northeast Ohio. It's in the mid-90s by mid-afternoon. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with my colleagues Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Courtney Astolfi. Ready to get into it. You ready for the heat? No. <laughs> That's why we're going to the newsroom, so we can enjoy the air conditioning of the <laughs> yeah. plane dealer in Cleveland.com. Yeah, although I don't know if you guys are aware of this. The air conditioner doesn't quite work there yet, so oh, I'm a little I, bit worried it's going to be hot. I felt like the hallways are really, really chilly, so if I get, get too hot, I'll just like... All right, move my desk this. into the hallway. Exactly. Right, good idea. Okay. <laughs> Let's begin. How is it fair that a federal judge is blocking a legislative candidate from the Ohio ballot because the candidate did not file to run before anyone in the state knew where the legislative district lines would be? Laura, when we talked about the challenges that people are putting up, we thought it was a slam dunk. Of course they're going to be able to file. You, nobody knew what the district lines would be. To, to require them to have filed months before that is just plain silly. And yet a federal judge has done just that. Yeah, exactly. I I cannot explain how this is fair because I don't see how it's fair. And there are a bunch of these lawsuits related to the redistricting process and the Republicans drawing it out for so long. This is the first decision. So I wonder if it's going to set a precedent. But U.S. District Judge Douglas R. Cole, he ruled that Jennifer Giroux's lawsuit was unlikely to succeed. He said that February 2nd deadline that was set for candidates for legislative districts was an inevitable byproduct of this May federal court order. That's the one that basically set down the gerrymandered districts as the ones we're going to vote on in August. So that was actually six months before we're going to vote. And you couldn't have known that because it was still being challenged in court. But he says because the courts didn't specifically change the filing deadlines when they set a new election that the February date stands. Yeah, this sets up a schism possibly between the federal and the state courts. The Ohio Supreme Court has welcomed these cases. They've welcomed everybody who wants to be in and they fast-tracked it. And Mm -hmm. again, it's it's right. It's the right thing to do. There's a there's a number of days before the election that the filing deadline is supposed to be. Nobody knew what the lines were. It's preposterous to say, oh, well, because of how screwed up this is, you can't do it. What was surprising in the federal court ruling was the judge said, yeah, I can't find any precedent for this. So set one. Do the right thing. That would be a definite argument for him. But he said that she should have filed to run for the state legislator at the time, the map, um, and even and then could have changed it later. But I, I don't know how anybody could have known this. It wasn't like there were instructions telling people, hey, we know this is confusing. Just get your name out there now and we can fix it later. There was nothing to tell these people what they were supposed to be doing. I mean, they were just sitting watching, wondering what was going to happen. We didn't even know in February that there wouldn't be a legislative race in in May. It's a it's a simple standard they should be following. What's the right thing to do and do it? And so often in this process, that has not happened. This federal judge just just went the opposite of what common sense and decency would say. Hopefully the Ohio Supreme Court will come at it with a much more sane approach. And then What's you wonder the ta- that if that happens, because that's ongoing, there's both a it was filed by Democratic candidates in the Supreme Court, and they granted permission for would-be Republican candidates to get involved as well. If they rule in favor of the candidates, now does 
this Jennifer Jarreau like say, okay, forget the federal. I'm going with the Supreme yeah, Court. Yeah, I think I think she will. And look, if if the Supreme Court of Ohio rules, put them on the ballot, and, and it's both bipartisan. Frank LaRose, I think, would be hard pressed to challenge that. I mean, to to take it to federal court and say this is wrong. The state court will have ruled on state issues, and I think that would, in this the case... The state court also told Frank LaRose that his maps were gerrymandered, and they were like, just kidding, we're just going to submit him again. Yeah, but because this is bipartisan, I'm not sure that he would take the same tack. I mean, there, there, it's one thing to say, I don't think it's good policy, and then the courts come back and, and disagree with you. It's another thing to go against the court saying there's common sense here. We'll see. Do you know what the timing of that is? I don't know. I think uh, I don't know when they're going to issue I mean, I the thought, next. I thought there was like three days to file and three days to respond. It is quick. And then there was an already one in Franklin County that became moot because the Board of Elections just let them on. Like they're like, don't worry about the courts. We're going to do the right thing here. You're on. You're fine. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With the weather getting toasty today, we're thinking about pools and wondering why Cleveland cannot keep them open longer than usual, as Mayor Justin Bibb wishes. Courtney, why not? Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb hopes to extend the pool season by two weeks to the third week of August. Usually, outdoor city pools close down the first week of August, but he's trying to see if he can keep enough lifeguards employed long enough to keep the pools open that that extra time. Now, the city's already dealing with a lifeguard shortage. It only has about one-third of what it would prefer to have to run the outdoor pools this summer. So with that shortage, I'll be curious to see if enough folks stay around long enough at the end of the season to keep the pools open longer. You know, a lot of these lifeguards, of course, are young school-age, high school, college kids, who knows if they'll be able to hang on until August 21st, but Bib wants to see if, if the city can give kids a little bit longer time in the pools this summer. Yeah, and usually the pools are timed to, to, to the schools, but schools start so early now in the first week of August that you really deprive people of the cooling. This isn't just a Cleveland thing. Lots of places have had lifeguard shortages, which is odd because that's always been considered to be a great job if you have the lifeguard certification. My kids did it, and you get paid pretty decent money to sit in a chair and watch people <laughs> swim and teach kids how to swim. It's, you know, it's not, the, it's not a bad job, but for some reason, nobody wants to do well, it now. Well, can I jump in here? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, because, I mean, this does surprise no one, right, that I was a lifeguard for five years, and, like, it was my first job when I was 15. I made $4.25 an hour. And to me, yeah, it's, bo- it's mind-boggling. You're like, this is the best job ever. You get to, like, see your friends and be in the sun and, like, cool off in the pool, and it's fantastic. But I, I know Rocky River is, is having a lifeguard shortage. They won't rent out the pool after hours this year because they just don't have the staffing. So now I've decided that that's my retirement plan. Like, when I retire, I'm going to become a lifeguard again and get to spend my summers Well, if you Well, if you do it in the city of Cleveland, Laura, you'll be making 15 an hour. And that's up from last year in I mean, an attempt it, to recruit. I got like another 20 some years, right? It'll be going up by then. Like, I feel like this is a good plan. <laughs> I, what I don't get, though, is, is it's not like we have fewer kids. And, no. and, you know, people in college need to make some money in the summer months. And But I what, think that everybody is focused if, in college on career, right? And they're going to try and get these internships that gives them the next leg up for their jobs. But, you know, high school kids are the same ones that work fast food restaurants. And they can't get enough workers either. I think it's just this... 
worker shortage everywhere affecting every industry. Yeah, I, low wage jobs, you know, city officials several months ago acknowledged it's going to be hard to fill these slots this year. Just nationwide hiring issues like you mentioned and competition for for young workers. Yeah, I still, though, if you're a young kid, you're not really qualified to do anything except fast food or work the summer jobs like summer camps and and pools. What would you rather do? Sit inside the back of a hot kitchen making French fries or go run around with kids? I mean, it just seems like this would be the preference preference i mean I, I was a camp counselor as a kid it was a great way to spend the summer and laura like you said it's working in a pool has all sorts of benefits i'm surprised it's not attracting more you're listening to today in ohio does the cleveland museum of art have yet another piece of sculpture with a questionable provenance meaning it might have been stolen from its rightful owner long ago and sold to the museum Lisa, it feels like almost everything in American museums is, is going to be looked at as having been unlawfully taken from the countries of origin. This is going to be a perpetual conversation. What's this one about? Yeah, this is about a large glazed ceramic piece that's been in the Cleveland Museum's permanent collection for over 100 years. They acquired it in 1921, and it is currently on display. It's called Virgin and Child Enthroned with Saints Francis and Giovanni Gualberto. The artist is Benedetto Buglioni, but there was a paper in Tuscany, the Valdarno Post, that looked into the provenance of this piece to determine if it was stolen from the chapel of a small hamlet southeast of Florence back in 1904. Um, These articles and the news about this were broadcast by our local WEWS Channel 5 on Monday. Um, But the thing is, is that Colleen Christ, the CMA chief philanthropy officer, says this is the first we've heard about this claim. We have not been approached by Italy or the culture of ministry in Italy about this piece. So their provenance only goes back to 1911, the museum's own provenance on this piece. It was acquired by museum co-founder Jephthah Wade II in 1921, um, and then he donated it to the museum. But they the last thing they had before that was a German art dealer in Paris acquired this piece. The French government confiscated it in 1940, in 1914, and that it was sold in auction to 1921 before making its way to our museum. So yeah, it's weird. They're making claims about this, and they're even talking about the paper was talking about, you know, how they were going to approach Cleveland to get this piece back. But the Cleveland Museum's like, they haven't talked to us yet. But there, but there is a, a missing piece. So at some point, it was in the church, and by the early 1900s, it was in private hands, and and you can't really say how that happened. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. They don't know who stole it or how it was stolen, and and there were it went through several hands after it disappeared in 1904, before 1911, when this German art dealer acquired it. So yeah, it's, there's some holes in the story here. Shouldn't museums by now be looking at the provenance of everything they have? I mean, this wouldn't have been hard to figure out. If you looked at this piece and you traced its ownership history, you might have seen the decades-long era when the ownership was at issue, and you might have realized that it might belong somewhere else. I just wonder how many pieces are going to end up leaving the museums. It sounds like there's pretty good evidence that this was stolen from the church at some point, which means 
They should get it back. And the museum, the Cleveland Museum, has been very good about returning objects when the provenance has been proven. You know, back in 2008, they returned 14 ancient objects to Italy. They returned a 10th century Hanuman sculpture to Cambodia in 2015. And in 2017, the Drusus Minor marble bust was given back to Naples, Italy. So I think that the, the museum is very sensitive about this. But you're right, Chris. I mean, I would guess that maybe up to two-thirds of things that have landed in museums probably have been stolen at some point in their life yeah and 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 you're right the the cleveland museum of art is completely doing the right thing they're blameless in this they didn't know about it and with their history you know that they will do the right thing uh just a very interesting case you're listening to today in ohio ohio governor mike dewine signed the capital budget bill we've been talking about which starts the process of spending a whopping $3.5 billion. Other than the Intel chip factory outside Columbus, which gets all of the attention, where's the cash going, Laura? Well, the good news is a lot of this is cash rather than the bonds that the state will have to pay back. That's normally how they do capital spending, and then you end up paying a ton in interest. So we're going to save millions and millions of dollars by spending cash. And the reason that we can do that is still stimulus money. And apparently uh, taxes are way up over what was budgeted, which is unexpected, but good news, I guess. So $2.8 billion will come from state funds, the rest from federal dollars. Intel is getting the largest chunk at $1.1 billion, getting $100 million to the um, provide K through 12 school safety grants. They figure they're going to up to up that later, but that covers things to protect kids from school shootings, including visitor badging systems, school radio, GPS tracking, exterior door locking systems, and more. State parks are getting $515 million. That's going to be used on conservation projects, plus new cabins, improving campgrounds, and upgrading nature centers and historic sites. I think that sounds like a great idea. Uh, $600 million for K-12 school construction and renovations, $400 million for colleges and university buildings, which I'm sure lots of those could use that. So, yeah, this is going to be spread around, hopefully not like peanut butter and that it won't make a difference, but some of these could be some big projects. Yeah, it's a staggering sum of money, and, and we do have capital needs. So, Although there are people saying that this is not good government use of money, that putting money into museums and things goes beyond government purpose. I heard a lot about that when we talked about the capital budget before, that they'd rather have the government pave the roads and fix the bridges well, and do that I kind mean, of thing. They're putting $400 million to enhance security in state prisons and county jails, and they're going to improve safety needs for inmates and employees. I think we can all agree that that is a good use of money. Um, I mean, the state parks, they own those. And I was at the Kelly's Island State Park a couple of weeks ago and thought, this could could definitely use some work. So well, and- the, these were people questioning why you would take state capital budget money and put it into the Rock Hall or oh. the Cleveland Museum of Art saying, you know, that's not really the purpose of government. On the other side, are people say you have to support the arts. They're a huge part of the economy. And, and it's economic development as well. Right. But there are people that are looking at their tax bills and saying, I'm not comfortable with money being spent on these purposes. It's, it's worth mentioning. It's always good that taxpayers want to debate the use of tax dollars. Uh, they do it at least more openly than the people who are spending them. Yes. It's today in Ohio. Just a few weeks ago, Mike DeWine was in Northeast Ohio touting a big investment by Ford in green energy and electric delivery truck to be built here. 
But now he will be appearing with former Vice President Mike Pence for very opposite reasons. Courtney, what is that appearance about? Oil and natural gas. So not quite on the, the, the green side like we saw him a couple weeks ago. All about oil and natural gas. So Governor DeWine and former Vice President Pence are participating Thursday in a Cincinnati roundtable hosted by the, the, the state's industry. It's like an outreach arm of Ohio's oil and natural gas industry. And they're going to talk about the importance of domestically produced fossil fuels. And, you know, this event is being put on by this new organization Pence has founded. And it feels, you know, it seems like through Andrew's reporting, this is more of a political event than a governance event. You know, a DeWine campaign spokesperson said it'll give the governor a chance to talk about current record high gas prices and put the blame at President Joe Biden's feet. She said, quote, DeWine look, looks forward to joining Pence to discuss real solutions to give Ohioans much needed gas price relief. It's not open to the public. Who knows quite what will be said, but a far cry from the from the green discussion we recently had with the governor. I'll be interested to see if they actually have any solutions. What what what's when did using fossil fuels become part of the Republican mantra? I mean, you know, using fossil fuels is creating climate change. It's really harming the planet. And the move to green energy would make everybody healthier, Republicans and Democrats alike. How how does the how does burning up fossil fuels and pumping carbon into the atmosphere fit with the Republican doctrine? I mean, my mind's going to go straight to campaign <laughs> donations, but right. big oil, know. baby. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Lisa, your days in Houston, you, you know that better than any of us. You know, and I'm sure the argument is we need to tap all sources of energy, including green and fossil fuels. It feels like you know, that's kind of where the, the Republican discussion has gone in recent years. Well, Ohio has the big catchment of the natural gas. And it's, you know, we're, the, through fracking, they're getting a lot of natural gas out of underneath Ohio. So it's, it is an industry here. We recently had some stories about how big it is. Uh, and maybe that's what they're going to talk about. Solutions for gas prices. Okay, Mike DeWine, you're on the hook. What are you going to do to drop <laughs> gas prices? Because really, he can't do anything. You're listening to Today in Ohio. One Ohio school board member thought he had an idea for quickly solving the crisis the board created when it named a state superintendent while knowing that he was barred from serving by conflict of interest rules. Lisa, how did that idea work out? Well, it didn't work out, but just barely didn't work out. So Board of Education member John Hagen of Alliance, he pushed a resolution this week to instate Springboro Superintendent Larry Hook as the permanent superintendent of public education to replace Steve Dakin, who resigned after 11 days over ethics concerns. Now, Hook was one of the three finalists. He got four votes. Dakin got 10, Hook got four, and then the, the third guy didn't get any. But Hook is a, is a conservative favorite of this very divided school board, and uh, he is 
espouse some, you know, anti-CRT rhetoric, among other things. But resolutions in the Board of Education are typically introduced in one meeting and then voted on in the next month's meeting. So uh, Walt Davis of Cincinnati requested an emergency vote on Hagen's resolution, and then apparently a very spirited debate ensued after that. You know, Davis argued that there's no reason to delay the vote on an already vetted candidate and taking more time looks bad. Uh, Another Hook supporter on the school board, Jenny Kilgore, says she won't get a better candidate than they have they won't get a better candidate they than they already have but then and I'm saying school board I mean education board Paul LaRue says we've got to get this decision right and we shouldn't rush it so he's he was against that but yeah so several members of the board of education do want to start fresh and hire a search firm this time so we'll see what happens but yeah the vote was 10 to 7 so 10 voted to not advance this resolution and seven were like you know yeah we kind of do want to advance it well it was kind of inexplicable when dakin did not get a national search firm to find the best candidate and you know and then he put his name in and was appointed to the job so you kind of question his motives but it does seem like given the mess they're in hiring a national search firm would give this process some credibility. So it, 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 even though it's going to delay having a superintendent at a time when test scores are plummeting because of the pandemic, if you get the right superintendent as a result, it's worth doing it right this time. I mean, we can't do anything about how badly they screwed this up over the past six months. I mean, they really fumbled in one of their main duties, but, but you shouldn't compound the error by by capitalizing on the errors that you made before. So it's, I took this as a good sign. They're going to try and do the right thing. We'll see where we end <laughs> up. They can't have bollocks this up any worse than they already have. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Have preferred pronouns and gender-neutral language crossed over into the mainstream of Cleveland businesses? Laura, this is interesting that that the way you judge when something has moved mainstream, it's because businesses embrace it. Yeah, and so this is usually a recommended practice in the businesses that embraced it, not a requirement. And that's we're talking about pronouns like he, him, she, her, they, them, and uh, Plexus, which is an LGBT and allied chamber of commerce for Northeast Ohio, spoke to Sean McDonald about how this is working, that Businesses are embracing this because being mindful of pronouns is a small step that they can make to show people that they embrace people of all backgrounds, basically. And anyone outside gender norms, it's meant to make them more comfortable. People could have a unisex name. They could dress outside the gender norms or prefer pronouns that aren't gendered like they and them. So it's not just people who are are trans. And acknowledging these pronouns ahead of time help people who feel more comfortable basically and and I think eventually it will become super mainstream. I know you see them at the bottom of email um, signatures a lot of times or on Twitter profiles. I, although I think there's probably some pushback, but some companies like Eaton and Highland in our area have embraced this within the last year. You know, I don't generally use a full signature. I just sign my notes as Chris probably 95% of the time. Do you have a, a, a signature in which you use the pronouns? I don't right now. Right now, it just says Laura Johnston and my phone number. Um, and on my iPhone, it just has my name. But I think it's something worth 
talking about, and I think it will become more and more accepted. I First, it was happening in higher education circles. I remember seeing that a couple of years ago, but we're just talking within the last year that going mainstream for businesses. I should also add that Cavs, Monsters, and Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse employees started having their option in March uh, to do this. So I, I think we're going to see it grow. And it's not so much about you. It's more about making others comfortable by seeing it. Yeah, and giving people the space to show their own preferred pronouns. Like, if nobody had that, then it would be weird if somebody had they, them, right? But if everybody makes it pretty normal to put what they prefer to be called, then it's just a choice. Okay. We'll have to think about that. I mean, I may have to start adding a signature to my... Yeah, because Chris could be one of those... um, I mean, not not usually a unisex name, but Christopher, if you use that, it wouldn't be, but... You know, there's plenty of girls that could be Chris. For my byline, I always use Christopher for that reason. People would call me and think they were going to be talking to a woman. But once I became an editor, I dumped that because Christopher sounds way too formal. And I don't think most people who are aware of me now have that confusion. It's Today in Ohio. As the downtown Cleveland Casino, which has had several names, hits its 10th anniversary what have we learned and what have the people running it learned? Courtney, one thing I've learned is that Dan Gilbert never made good on his promise to build a full-fledged casino. Yes, here. that's that's definitely a takeaway here from reporter Sean McDonald's story. This like phase two expansion of the casino never came to be. It was planned at the beginning and kaput. But, you know, one other thing we learned and I thought it was interesting is that all the projections that were thrown out there at the beginning about how much tax revenue the casino would bring in, you know, those were overblown. We expect projections like that to be overblown, right? But Sean has the numbers. So, you know, projections at the beginning in 2009 throughout an annual revenue of $473 million, and the casino in 2021 had a record year and brought in $257 million. So, you know, that trickles down to what tax revenues are, are coming into county and school and city coffers. You know, it is worth noting how much did come in in taxes over the last decade, about $731 million. A good chunk went to counties, a good chunk went to school districts, and 37 went to Cleveland and Cuyahoga County. So that's interesting to get, get the numbers there. Yeah, it's good to look back. And in in Dan Gilbert's defense, we should point out that after he made the promise about building a second casino, after voters put the casinos in, John Kasich changed the rules on them by by allowing the Lottery Commission to set up racinos that created competition for the casinos and took away some of the profit motive for building the second one. So it's not... It's not just the he reneged. They, they did pull the rug out from under him and what his plans were. If not for the Racinos, my bet is we would have that second casino. Yeah, and, you know, just worth throwing out there, I'd, I'd like to share this takeaway. I found this really interesting because this has been kind of my experience of the Cleveland Casino. You know, when it was first put in, organizers kind of described it as their first foray into urban casinos outside of Vegas, and it was very slot machine focused. That's what... The suburban casinos, that was their popular feature, and they thought that's how Cleveland would shake out. But once they got in and, and got operations underway, they learned a lot of, like, the young people visiting the casino wanted more of, like, a party atmosphere out and about in downtown Cleveland kind of thing going. They swapped out a lot of the slots, added more table games, brought in more video game style 
games, more bar space, and 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 now they're preparing for sports betting. So that's kind of the next iteration of where we're headed. You ever been I, there? I've been there a few times, and not too frequently, but go cheap drinks, you know, putz around for an hour or two, and then go out downtown. I went for the buffet once. <laughs> Does that surprise anyone? How was that, Laura? Was that good? It was years and years ago, but they had a gelato wheel. Like, like it looked like a roulette wheel of gelato. Can't I'm sold that. that. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. For a feel-good story this Wednesday, who is the Cleveland native who had a hand in the new Buzz Lightyear movie from Pixar, and how did he land that role? Lisa, you had the art museum, you got this one. You got, like, the interesting stories today. 39-year-old Michael Anthony Nieves is a Parma native, and he's a 3D animator. He has a huge role in translating 2D images to 3D for the movie Lightyear, which is the latest installment in the Toy Story franchise, which is opening on Friday. So Nieves started drawing as a child, but nothing really came of it until he attended uh, Cuyahoga Community College. He took, took some design courses there and fell in love with 3D animation. And then he he took a little detour. He was working at a Strongsville Home Depot, and a co-worker there encouraged Nieves to join the Coast Guard to pay for his tuition to Savannah College of Art and Design in Georgia. So he did that. He went there, and in 2016, he joined the Pixar Animation Studio. His work includes uh, Toy Story 4, Soul, and Onward. So his role in, in Lightyear, he was promoted to Lead Character Modeling Technical Director. Director. So what that fancy term means is that he builds models with digital clay. So he builds them based on the 2D drawings given to him and he, he articulates the joints and you know how the, the figure will move throughout the movie and then he hand that off to the animator so the animator could place the images on his digital clay model. So very cool. Another great Clevelander. Yeah, and and the movie's getting very good reviews. I mean, the 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 Toy Story movies have always been well liked. It's a it's a good story. It's on Cleveland.com, and Laura, it's going to run in the Plain Dealer over the weekend, right? Yep, on the front page. Yeah, good stuff. You're listening to Tay in Ohio, and that wraps up a Wednesday discussion. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks to everybody who listens. Stay cool today. We'll be back tomorrow and talk about some more news. Mm-hmm.